You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Our guest today is Peter Sitchell. Peter Sitchell was an extraordinary figure uh, during the during the Cold War and during his time in both OSS and later CIA. Uh, known to many of his colleagues for his uh, his activities in in various places abroad, and we will touch on some of them. He had been born in Mainz, Germany, 1922, into a rather well-known, well-to-do winemaking family uh, who happened to be Jewish. And, of course, that uh, caused them, as with the rise of the Nazis, uh, caused them, a number of them, to flee Germany, some to stay. Uh, he actually fled Germany, uh, we can, and we will just touch on that. And he came to the United States and joined the OSS uh, in the middle of World War II, that is 1943. Afterwards, uh, when OSS was disbanded, he transitioned into CIA, which began in 1947, and he stayed there until 1959, and we will touch on his departure as well. Uh, When he left, he returned to the family wine business. He became a, a rather renowned wine expert himself, and his company became quite well known uh, for marketing, and I'm sure you're all familiar with it, Blue Nun Wines. So, uh, well done, Peter. I've, I've certainly <laughs> had those also. Uh, Peter, let me uh, just touch on your beginnings, and that is uh, growing up a Jewish in Germany. If you could just give us a little bit on a portrait of the times being, uh, being Jewish in that period and how you came to leave Germany. It's a little complicated because um, the main problem growing up in Germany when the Nazis took over, uh, the initial thing wasn't being Jewish and people being anti-Jewish. It was the battles fought in the street between the communists and the Nazis. And all the political parties had so-called militias. And those militias uh, marched up and down and fought with each other. So it was a very unsettling time with millions of unemployed, with a terribly uh, 
uh, a terrible economic uh, 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 economic crisis, uh, and based on that, ultimately the Nazis took over, and by and large, when Hitler came to power, uh, we've had about four or five different governments in three years, and most people thought that this wasn't going to last. Of course, it did last, and my mother was the only one in the family who said, this is different. This guy is going to bring the Middle Ages back to life. We ourselves had very little problems of being discriminated or being badly handled. I think there are two reasons for it. I grew up in a very Catholic uh, city. We were very prominent citizens who had been living there for hundreds of years. And uh, the Nazis actually specified that we were economically very important because we brought millions of uh, dollars into Germany in foreign currency, which they needed. So we lived a little bit in a fool's paradise. But my parents decided they, were, they, they would have to leave anyhow, regardless of how well or badly they were treated, because they were convinced that things were going to get worse. So they sent me and my sister to school in England, and uh, uh, we were blessed that way. However, I graduated in England in 1939 and moved to France, which is probably the worst time in the world. To, to be a resident in France just before the Germans defeated the French. Uh, so when you uh, when you left uh, for uh, Germany for England, were you part of the Kinder transport? Not not at all. My 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 parents put us in very good schools in England. We had a business in England, so we had no problems paying for it, and it was considered. Uh, my mother had been in school in in Belgium. My father had some schooling in England as a child. It was a family tradition to send the children uh, either to a French or an English-speaking country for part of their education. So uh, it 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 was a bit it, it was a bit uh, uh, strange if you look at it for the rest of the uh, rest of the community. Uh, but uh, we also re realized that once I went to school in England, I couldn't go back to to Germany because there was no assurance they would let me out again. Right. So when you actually made your way to France, which, as you point out, was not the best time in the world to do it, yeah, yeah. Uh, did you have to flee France, or, or were you able to just make your way uh, eventually to America? Oh, it was much more complicated than that, because well, when, I, the, <laughs> when the war started, the French interned me as an enemy alien. And when I left Germany, my father said to me, Peter, you're Jewish and you're German, and nobody likes either the one or the other. So uh, when the war started, the French interned all German refugees as enemy aliens. They weren't sure if we were fifth columnists or whatever. And they let us run just about 24 hours before the Germans overran the camp. And we uh, uh, ran, we didn't run actually, we took a taxi to the, to the Spanish border and uh, the Spanish wouldn't let us in, so we went to what turned out to be the, the non-occupied part of France, Vichy France, and uh, were there until we got an American visa in April of 41. Uh, it was a little uh, strange because my father had been 
had been uh, had left Germany without permission and had been uh, uh, had been was was uh, was sentenced to five years of of, of uh, hard labor, uh, but fortunately the Germans did not turn over his name to the French to hand him over. They were still worried about political refugees rather than regular criminals like my father. So we're very fortunate to get out and be able to get through, uh, through Spain and Portugal to the United States. And my understanding is, uh, going back to your, yeah. uh, your account, that uh, you joined the OSS in 1943 and you were still then even only 20. How did that happen? Had you gone into the army and the OSS spotted you? Yes, I, I volunteered for the army. Uh, they called me up. They put me in the medical corps. Uh, I then was tested for the army specialty, uh, specialized tr uh, training program. And I was sent, uh, I was assigned to the University of uh, Wisconsin. However, uh, I was, uh, it was between, between uh, scholastic, uh, uh, sc uh, scholastic, uh, the scholastic year. So they put me in the University of Utah for three months. And there I was interviewed by two people in, uh, actually in civvies who asked me if I was, uh, after they questioned me where I'd lived in France, in the Pyrenees, etc., and tested my French, they said, would you volunteer to be dropped behind the German lines? And I said, I'm a, I'm a soldier, whatever I'm asked to do, I do. And they said, this is slightly different. We really don't want you to do it unless you really do want to do it. So I did volunteer to be dropped behind the German lines. Uh, and uh, that was my beginning in the OSS. Uh, I reported to Washington. I was sent to a training area where I was never trained. And the mission for which I was recruited never, was, was, uh, well, never took place. And they ultimately didn't know what to do with me. And they made a uh, confidential uh, uh, messenger out of me in Washington until I said, you either sent me back to the University of Wisconsin or sent me overseas to a real job. So they sent me to Algiers to be a confidential fin finance clerk. And I ended up uh, uh, handling fun confidential funds and procuring uh, enemy funds in places like Beirut and uh, and um, Lisbon and ultimately in Tunisia, where I gathered something like 50,000 French francs, which the Germans had left behind when they uh, abandoned Tunisia. And from there, I ended up ultimately when we needed German speakers and after I went into, the, uh, into France with the Southern French invasion, the OSS, uh, um, the OSS uh, unit at the 7th Army, I was sent in as a, actually a confidential fund officer. But suddenly we needed people who spoke German and I spoke German and they made an intelligence officer out of me to recruit German PWs and help train them and send them back into Germany. That's how I ended up in the intelligence business, ultimately. Uh, could you just touch on that a bit? Was that, uh, was that 
successful. In other words, you actually trained uh, people, Germans, uh, who had been POWs, to go then back in behind German lines with the idea of collecting intelligence and coming back out. Is that what the mission was? Was it intelligence collection or were there other uh, uh, things that they were directing them to do? No, it was basically my 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 first abil- my first great ability which i which they found i was very good at was being able to recruit german pws i still spoke absolutely fluent german uh, i could adapt myself by dialect to the dialect of the german and after the interrogators had segregated the people they thought might be willing to volunteer to be sent back i was one of three people who then recruited them. And in due course, I was trained in order to train them in part of their identity, their their, uh, their, uh, um, their stories, how they went back. And we had different types of missions. We had we had missions which were tourist missions where we uh, parachuted people in uh, who were on so-called leave from the from the front to visit home for two weeks and then worked their way back to their old unit. Or we had people we parachuted in with a radio operator. Uh, those were the people where we hopefully had some safe houses for them to go to. And other people we parachuted in with a uh, Joan and Eleanor uh, ability to communicate with a plane that went uh, overhead certain times of the day and certain uh, days uh, to communicate the intelligence we send them in to collect. Uh, I was involved in about 32 recruitments. Our unit was involved in about 32 missions. We lost a total of three, three missions. The rest, they all came back. We are very lucky. A lot of them were short-range uh, missions. Some of them were uh, much more, uh, much more lengthy missions. Uh, but it was basically collecting uh, low-level uh, 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 order of battle. But there were also specific missions, such for, for instance, to identify where the German uh, jet planes. Uh, were were operating from. They were not operating from from any of their their regular airfields, and we found them through one of the missions along the autobahn between Augsburg and Munich. And the planes used the autobahn in order to start and land, and they were parked under the trees. Well, they weren't parked under the trees very long after we found out where they were. That particular mission actually was not. Uh, was the person who found that was actually a uh, a Alsatian nurse who we had recruited, uh, who had been a uh, a mistress of a German officer, and she was working her way back into good graces. So, uh, she was an extraordinary an extraordinary woman. We sent her in a, as a as a as a uh, as a nurse. Uh, and that worked out extremely well. From your remarks and some of what I've read, it sounds like those missions were to a large degree successful. They were indeed. Yes. I I noticed also that 
in the course of that work and then in the course of that work, uh, that period, you met Dick Helms, Richard Helms, who was to become a friend. I wonder if you could just talk about a little bit about him in that period, how you came to meet him. Well, I was asked to go to a conference in Paris around Christmas of 1944. And the conference was on the subject of the of what would happen uh, after the German uh, the Germans collapsed. Uh, it largely dealt with uh, the possibility of guerrilla war. Uh, it dealt with the possibility of the redoubt, uh, which you may remember, we thought the Germans were going to uh, uh, have a resistance group in the mountains uh, of, uh, of uh, Bavaria and Austria. And uh, during that time, Richard Helms asked me uh, if I was willing to stay on in Germany after the war and be part of the OSS team after the war in Germany. And I met him for the first time. And um, that was a relationship which became much closer, obviously, when he chose me to become uh, head of the unit in, in Berlin on the 1st of October 1944 to clean up a unit which had been uh, somewhat um, uh, spoiled by the black market because they were spending their time on the black market rather than collecting intelligence. And it was at that time that I really got to know Dick extremely well. And then I worked for Dick for a long time, first when he was head of Eastern Europe, and obviously afterwards when he became first head of operations and ultimately DDP. DDP. And uh, we became very close friends. Right. The DDP, just for our listeners, was the deputy director for plans in the CIA, which was the head of what today is the National Clandestine Service. I wonder, while we're on Helms, yeah. Could you just say something about him as, as a person, as a man to deal with? You dealt with him uh, at that time when he appointed you to a position, but, but you became friends and you knew him over the years. C can you just give us sort of a flavor of Helms the Man? Well, Helms the Man was that very rare thing, an, a, a, a gentleman through and through, was extremely well-educated, he, he was a man of great elegance. Uh, he had a good sense of humor. He had an extremely, he was extremely good in expressing himself. He, he was a, a person who could dictate a memo without ever having to correct it afterwards. He had a sense of history, a sense of where intelligence could provide that element to help the people who made policy. Uh, he had a, a, an extremely broad sense of what would make a good intelligence officer. In many ways, though he was a very, uh, very much a man of, of, uh, of the establishment, he also knew in order to do our work, we needed people who didn't quite fit into the establishment. Uh, for instance, we had an outstanding uh, intelligence officer in Berlin. His name was Sick Huxter. 
He was, had been a professor of mathematics in Frankfurt. He was a German refugee. He was an alcoholic to some extent. He was indiscreet in his love life, but he was extremely good in collecting uh, uh, scientific intelligence. And uh, Dick Helms was willing to overlook some of his rather odd uh, uh, personality traits because he knew he was loyal. He was discreet in what he did. And he was willing to also uh, promote the man beyond a grade of where he would fit in because he was a single man doing an extraordinary job. I once discussed with Dick Helms the problem of uh, the homosexuals we had in OSS, who all obviously were all let go. And I said, well, some of them were outstanding intelligence officers. I said, can't we somehow arrange that we put a little remark in their uh, personnel files that they know they are and that they will tell anybody in case they get uh, anyone tries to recruit them for that reason. Well, Dick said, I'm willing to overlook a lot of things, but that I cannot overlook. <laughs> so he was a man you could discuss anything with, but a man who had a principle, a man who lived by a very strict code of behavior, and a man who had a great sense of history and a great sense of where intelligence fitted into the government. Uh, yes, I think that's a wonderful uh, summation of, of Dick. Could I just for a moment, uh, in saying that that was the one thing that he could not overlook, no. was he making a judgment about the behavior or was he concerned that, as we later feared, they could be subject to blackmail or pressure if they were not open about them. I mean, in many places, homosexuality was still illegal or it was very much yes. frowned on in society. No, I think his, his, his uh, reservation was more uh, protecting the agency from people uh, in, in the government and from publicity. Uh, I think he knew that we could protect ourselves but we could not protect ourselves to the criticism of a McCarthy and, and whoever. And I think it was a, a, a right political decision he made. That concludes the first part of my interview with Peter Sitchell. Please check back soon for part two, when we will discuss Peter's experiences in the CIA, particularly in Germany after World War II. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you. <laughs>